Chapter twenty six of Paul the Dauntless. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Leeson. Paul the Dauntless by Basil Joseph Matthews. Chapter twenty six The Defiance of Artemis. Paul, when he had passed through the gateway in those great walls, four miles long, which surrounded Ephesus, and entered the busy streets, would hasten to the house where his old Corinthian friends, Priscilla and Aquila, were living. After telling them the adventures that had fallen to him by sea and land during his six months' journey, he would listen to all the story of the work in Ephesus in his absence. There came to us from Egypt, they would say, from the city of Alexandria, a Jew named Apollos. He was one who believed all that John the Baptist preached on Jordan, and he had learned about Jesus and his message of the kingdom of God. This he preached here in Ephesus. He is a man of power and of deep scholarship, and he spoke in the synagogue most vehemently, explaining to the people the way of Jesus. We brought him here to our house, and explained to him more clearly what the way of God means. Alexandria, on the northeast coast of Africa, was the greatest place of learning for the more liberal-minded Jews in Paul's day. Paul was very glad to have a powerful orator with an educated mind, like Apollos, to help in the work. "'But where is Apollos now?' he would ask. He desired to go over to Greece, so the brothers here wrote a letter to the Christians in Corinth telling them to welcome Apollos and make him feel at home among them. So he has sailed across there and is helping them splendidly. He is publicly contesting with the Jews with might and main, showing them from our scriptures that Jesus is truly the Messiah. Paul immediately set to work to follow up the work that Aquila and Apollos had done in Ephesus. He went straight to the synagogue. There he spoke out fearlessly, explaining how Jesus had come to bring in the reign of God in the world. Many of the men who squatted there, fingering their beards as they listened to his glowing words, and many of the women, who sat hidden behind the screen, yet were all ears to these startling new things, believed that what Paul said was true. They became disciples of the Christian way. But others disagreed and grew more and more stubborn in their views. They began to raise their voices in argument against Paul, and said everything that they could against Paul's teaching. Paul made an agreement to hire a hall named, after its past or present owner, Tyrannus. So withdrawing his disciples from the synagogue, he used to teach them and all who cared to hear in the school of Tyrannus, probably during the afternoons. The business life of the cities of the East ended by middle day, so that handicraftsmen and officials, lawyers or shopkeepers, were free to attend. Timothy, Titus, and Priscilla and Aquila would also be there listening and taking down notes. The work of Paul in the quiet of that room is less thrilling to us than his adventures in prison at Philippi or before Gallio in Corinth. Yet that work was one of the most fruitful and far-sighted of all his acts. As Paul sat there on the summer afternoons at Ephesus, in the lecture-room with his disciples grouped round him, listening and taking notes, the eyes of his mind were gazing far beyond them. He saw all that province of Asia, of which Ephesus was the glittering and splendid capital, like the palm of a hand of which the valley in which Ephesus lay was the wrist and the rivers were the fingers. There ran the fingers of the Lycus, the Meander, the Castor, the Hermus, and their tributaries, and on them the busy trading cities of Laodicea, Colossae, Philadelphia, 
hierapolis smyrna sardis and thyatira covering asia the richest province in the roman empire which it was now paul's daring plan to capture for his lord no wonder that he wrote from ephesus to his friends in corinth i have wide opportunities here for active service he looked over that province like a general officer commanding planning to win it for his king the disciples who sat with him learning were the officers whom paul was training he planned to capture that fair province from tyrannus's lecture-room and he succeeded timothy tychicus epaphras and other men went out from that room and from the presence of paul up those river valleys aflame with enthusiasm and strong with his courage in synagogue and market-place in all those cities they declared to jew and greek roman and asian scholar and merchant scribe and soldier gymnast and gladiator the unsearchable riches of him whom paul had brought to them thus it was doubtless that the gospel reached colossi and laodicea colossians two one and other cities in the roman province of asia where the churches had not seen paul's face even to the time when he wrote to them from rome the open letter we know as ephesians so wonderfully did paul's splendid and daring strategy succeed in working from that room the school of tyrannus that luke was able to write paul carried on his discussions and teaching every day perhaps from eleven to four as a later note added to some local copy of acts has it in the lecture-room of tyrannus this went on for two years so that all the inhabitants of asia heard the word of the lord there were mysterious people among those whom paul taught magicians wonder-workers hypnotists some had rolls of parchment and papyrus with strange drawings and signs like the bear the ram the heavenly twins the goat they would ask your birthday and work out the star under which you were born and then declare whether you would be shipwrecked or become a great general they would make you gaze in a crystal ball to see things happening far away they would make an image in wax in the shape of your enemy and then burn it or stick pins into its heart as a magic way of killing him they would mutter spells to cast out demons and mix magic potions or burn charms in mystic fires there were more of these magicians in ephesus than anywhere in the world some were cheats and charlatans others believed sincerely in the power of their charms all as they came under the higher spell of the power of christ under paul's teaching would come to him and confess to him the magic spells that they used and say that they were going to give them up at last there were so many who used to practice magic arts and had now decided to be christians that all brought together the parchment rolls on which their spells and star readings were written placing them in a great pile they set them in a blaze and made a great bonfire of them they reckoned up that day that two thousand pounds worth of books were burned the crowds of people who stood around with wondering eyes as the flames leaped up even those who before had not really listened to paul's preaching felt awestruck by the power of his work one day some men sailed across the aegean from synchrea and landed at the harbor at ephesus coming up the portway into the city they inquired where paul lived when they found him he was very glad to see them for they were from the home of chloe in corinth and he looked forward to having news of how his beloved people there were doing 
His face, however, became very grave and a little stern when he heard that the Christians in Corinth had been quarreling among themselves, and had also fallen into just those horrible sins of unclean living that made the name of Corinth a byword all over the Roman Empire. On the second of these matters he had already heard from Corinth before, and had replied at once in a letter which has not survived. Now he sat down and dictated a second and longer letter to them. He spoke the words, and they were written on the long roll of parchment, perhaps by Sosthenes or Titus or even Luke. We can imagine how, when these words were read out to the people gathered together at Corinth, their faces would flush with shame as he upbraided them for their quarreling and foul living, and then glow with joy as he showed them the true ideal for their lives. Brothers, he wrote, I beg of you, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, to drop these party cries. There must be no cliques among you. You must regain your common temper and attitude, for Chloe's people inform me that you are quarreling. By quarreling, I mean that each of you has his party cry, I belong to Paul, and I to Apollos, and I to Cephas, Peter, and I to Christ. Has Christ been parceled out? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? With jealousy and quarrels in your midst, are ye not behaving like ordinary men? When one cries, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, what are you but men of the world? Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? They are simply used by God to carry his gospel, each as the Lord assigns his task. I did the planting, Apollos did the watering, but it was God who made the seed grow, so neither planter nor waterer counts, but God alone who makes the seed grow. We work together in God's service. You are God's crop from his seed, God's house being built up. So you must not boast about men, for all belongs to you, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, the present and the future. All belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ to God. Then, lest they should say that it was all very well for Paul to write so when he himself was at his ease, he explains to them that, to this very hour we hunger and thirst, we are ill-clad and knocked about, we are waifs, we work hard for our living, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we put up with it, when defamed we try to conciliate, to this hour we are treated as scum of the earth, the very refuse of the world. Even apart from the fresh news as to the length to which party strife had gone in the Corinthian church, Paul was intending to answer its own questions, partly in reply to his recent letter, and partly on other points, which had reached him by special messengers, probably bearing them in writing. The messengers may have included Sosthenes, a leader of the church at Corinth, whom Paul associates with himself as agreeing in the counsel given in his letter. He goes, then, carefully over the points they had raised, mingling profound instruction in Christian principles with his censures on their shortcomings. Incidentally, he shows them in one sentence what will make them all feel one, not people who can be divided and think themselves better than each other. By one spirit we have all been baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or freemen, we have all been saturated with one spirit. Many prided themselves on their special spiritual gifts, charismata, and used them in a selfish, egoistic way. Paul corrected this by the idea of a single body with its many different members, the eye, the hand, the foot, 
all working for the common good of that body as a whole. All its special functions are due to the same God, who works in and through each and all its members. But there was a yet simpler and more direct way of appeal for self-forgetful cooperation instead of pride and competition for glory. Paul glowed with a new fire as he broke out into that wonderful praise of love which men will read and reread in all languages till speech perishes from the earth. Yet I will go on to show you a still higher path. I may speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have no love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I may prophesy, fathom all mysteries and secret lore. I may have such faith that I can move hills from their places, but if I have no love, I count for nothing. I may distribute all I possess in charity. I may give up my body to be burnt, but if I have no love, I make nothing of it. Love is very patient, very kind. Love knows no jealousy. Love makes no parade, gives itself no airs, is never rude, never selfish, never irritated, never resentful. Love is never glad when others go wrong. Love is gladdened by goodness, always slow to expose, always eager to believe the best, always hopeful, always patient. Thus faith and hope and love last on, these three, but the greatest of all is love." How the very being of those men and women at Corinth must have tingled as the bearer of this letter read out these words straight from their glorious author. So Paul came toward the end of his great letter, and sent across the Aegean Sea from Ephesus to Corinth his ringing challenge and command, Watch, stand firm in the faith, play the man, be strong, let all you do be done in love. Paul bent over the letter and with his own hand penned its close. Then it was rolled and covered with an outer case to protect it from damage in traveling. The messenger, probably his trusted Greek friend Titus, would thrust it into his tunic and go down the portway to the harbor, to carry across the water to Corinth words that will be read till the end of time. In that letter Paul said that he hoped to start on a journey around the coasts of the Aegean Sea, visiting Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, till he came to them in Corinth itself. But a great riot occurred which threw all his plans out and hastened his journey. It came about thus. Each year, as a springtime was changing to full summer, on a certain morning in May, the streets of Ephesus began to fill with crowds of holiday-making country people who had come down on foot or by ass or camel from the river valleys of Asia. With them came merchants and shopkeepers, officials and students, from the cities of Lycus and Meander and Castor Valleys, while the ships that crept into the port brought pilgrims from all along the coast and even from Greece and Macedonia across the Aegean Sea. The whole country made holiday in honor of Artemis, the goddess of wild nature, now partly Asian and partly Greek in character. The people crowded to see the chariots race round the stadium on the hill, drawn by horses, frenzied by the cracking whips of the drivers and the shouts of the crowd. Wrestlers, their bodies glistening with oil in the blazing sun, and boxers with iron-studded gloves on their knuckles, strained and struggled. Men ran the foot-races for the prize of a wreath. Hungry beasts, lions from Africa and tigers from the east, were let loose on the sanded arena of the stadium to fight with gladiators standing with their short swords drawn. 
in the theatre actors played comic plays of aristophanes before the hill of faces that surrounded them the audience which crowded the seats that rose tier above tier in the vast auditorium paul heard the blare of trumpets and the clash and boom of cymbal and drum and saw the multitude press out toward the magnesian gate of the city the priests and priestesses of artemis came in procession with some slaves playing the music and others bearing aloft under canopies statues of the great goddess as these passed by the people waved their arms and gave a shout that surged to the very skies great artemis great artemis of ephesus through the streets the goddess in symbol made her triumphal way to the theatre where play was made in her honour she came out again and was borne forward on the shoulders of men above the shouting crowds toward the gate by mount coressus and back through the groves of green trees above which could be seen the broad ridged roof of the wonderful temple built for her worship as the procession drew nearer to the artemision the people saw a lovely white temple its wide roof and portico rested on row behind row of marble pillars whose carved capitals were overlaid with gold and whose vast size was made graceful and light by their exquisite proportions climbing the marble steps that surrounded and raised the temple the worshippers went barefoot out of the blaze of the sunshine through the massive carven doors of cypress wood into the cool dim quiet of the great hall of the temple with its many statues beyond which lay the inner holy place with its roof of golden cased cedar resting on priceless pillars of green jasper its carven altar its embroidered curtain behind which was concealed the goddess artemis herself who had fallen they said from heaven she was never shown to the people a dark roughly carved image with no beauty out into the city however paul could see men were buying little graven or terracotta images of artemis in her shrine some to take back to their homes to worship others to present as a votive offering at the artemision the temple itself for four days the great festival of artemis was celebrated each may time and then the crowds melted away going back along a score of roads and across the sea but all through the year in the booths in the market-place sat men who were moulding and carving and hammering they were making the little shrines naoi of artemis sitting in a niche with her lions couched by her side here the sculptor carved the figures in pure marble from mount coressus by his side a man with agile clever fingers moulded them in clay that was put into the furnace and baked some of the finished terracotta shrines stood beside him in the silversmith's guild men sat by their tiny forges with little hammers and anvils on which they tapped the grey silver and moulded it to beautiful little images of artemis many men in ephesus made their living by these handicrafts and sold their shrines not only in ephesus and on the feast day but all up the lycus castor and meander valleys and at places like sardis philadelphia pergamos and thyatira hierapolis laodicea and colossi for all asia worshipped artemis of ephesus a leader among these silversmiths was named demetrius as he saw paul with his helpers aquila and timothy and erastus gaius and aristarchus and others spreading through asia their new religion which said that handmade images of gods had no power and ought not to be worshipped demetrius saw that his income from the shrines would fall in proportion as paul succeeded 
he did not stop to ask himself whether what paul said was or was not true he only saw that these new worshippers of the god whom they called christ were growing in numbers and in power all over the city and that men who had in the old days bought shrines of artemis now bought them no longer swiftly one winter day he drew the leading craftsmen together the silversmiths the sculptors in wood and marble and clay perhaps in the guild of the silversmiths where he was a leading employer when they were met together he stood up and spoke my men he said you know this trade is the source of our wealth you also see and hear that not only at ephesus but almost all over asia this fellow paul has drawn off a considerable number of people by his persuasions he declares that handmade gods are not gods at all now the danger is not only that we shall have our trade discredited but that the temple of the great goddess artemis will fall into contempt and that she will be degraded from her majestic glory she whom all asia and the wide world worship demetrius by thus artfully playing both on their trade interest and their pride in ephesus as the centre for artemis worship roused the meeting to fury against paul they poured out into the street shouting in their passion of enthusiasm for artemis and rage against the new way great artemis of ephesus they shouted as they crowded into the street the people leapt from their shops and houses sailors ran up the portway from the harbor smiths threw down their tools boys left their games to find out the cause of the uproar they could only discover that the worship of their goddess was threatened so they all joined in the cry there was a shout of to the theatre the dust rose in the air above the many-colored moving mob that pushed and jostled and yelled its way to the theatre which was close by the market-place as the leaders headed the throng they caught sight of gaius and aristarchus of macedonia two of paul's principal helpers who had been busy spreading the faith in asia there are two of the ringleaders one would cry away with them they rushed at gaius and aristarchus and dragging them by their arms and pushing them along they surged down the street and crowded like a full flowing tide into the theatre clambering up the marble steps and over the seats till the place was alive with faces of all nations romans greeks egyptians cretans men of asia even jews paul heard the uproar and found that his friends gaius and aristarchus had been dragged into the theatre immediately he started to go to the theatre himself to face the raging mob regardless of the peril some of his disciples at once came round paul and held him back we can imagine their argument do not go you are our leader all the churches depend upon you and you must keep yourself for the sake of us all besides that what good would come if you went in among those raging beasts the sight of you would only sting demetrius and all his men to a wilder fury which the excitable mob of an ionian coast city like this would wreak on aristarchus and gaius as well as on you as paul was hesitating messengers came running to him from some of the asiarchs the great officials who were the high priests for all asia of the worship of the divine majesty of rome itself in the persons of emperor and the whole line of caesars these great roman-spirited officers were friends of paul and did not wish any harm to come to him knowing that paul never cared for his own safety and fearing that he would rush into the theatre and be torn to pieces they sent to him saying do not imperil your life by coming into the amphitheatre paul at last reluctantly gave way in the theatre din and chaos ruled 
Everyone was shouting, some yelling one thing, some another. The majority had no idea why they had met. At last the Jews, fearing that the mob would turn against them as the class known to be opposed to all carving of graven images, pushed to the front Alexander, a leading Jew. He stood on the stage, beckoning with his hand to get silence, so that he could defend himself against the cries of the people. For a few seconds there was quietness. Then the mob discovered that the speaker was a Jew, and a roar broke out from them all, so that not a word that he said could be heard. "'Great Artemis of Ephesus!' they shouted, turning a prayer into a rallying cry. "'Great Artemis of Ephesus!' For two hours that cry echoed from the theatre across the city to the harbour. At last when they were exhausted, the secretary of state of Ephesus, the ruling official who was in close touch with the proconsul from Rome, stood up, and at last got complete silence. "'Men of Ephesus,' he began with a touch of flattery that secured their hearing, "'who on earth does not know that the city of Ephesus is warden of the temple of the great Artemis and of the statue that fell from heaven? All that is beyond question. So you should keep calm and do nothing reckless.' "'Instead of that,' he continued, pointing to Gaius and Aristarchus, "'you have brought these men here who are guilty neither of sacrilege nor of blasphemy against our goddess. If Demetrius and his fellow tradesmen have a grievance against anybody, let both parties state their case. The assizes are held, and there are such persons as proconsuls to give judgment. Any wider claim must be settled by the legal assembly of the citizens.' indeed he concluded there is a danger of our being charged with a riot over to-day's meeting there is not a single reason that we can give for this disorderly gathering now go your ways at this the people began to pour out from the theatre arguing laughing angry and ashamed by turns when the tumult in the city had quieted down paul called his disciples together round him in the quietness he talked with them about the work that lay before them in Ephesus and other cities of Asia. He had been with them now for over two years, speaking daily in the philosophy school called after Tyrannus, writing letters, sending his helpers out into other cities, till now there were not only many churches among the cities, but there were men who could lead and carry forward the work that he had opened up. He had intended to stay till that spring, and then to sail in the late spring at Pentecost, going round by Philippi and Thessalonica to Corinth, as he had promised them in his letter. But the riot made his own work in Ephesus impossible for the time. Paul had never since his call from Tarsus stayed so long in one place as Ephesus, and in no place had the opportunity been so wonderful. But he felt the spirit of the pioneer stirring in him, the thrill that stung him on to run the full course, on to his goal. It was winter, with the mountains and hills above Ephesus etched in white snow against the dark sky, and away to the west the pearly sea of islands. The great sea was not open for journeying, but venturesome sailors could run the gauntlet of the storms in short voyages from port to port up the coast. Paul, therefore, went down to the harbor and took passage in a coasting vessel. She was rowed down river, then the sweeps were drawn in, and with sail hoisted, she leapt out over the gray waste of waters with her bows northward. End of chapter 26